a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. This is the week of September 25th through 29th, 2023. It is the third and final week of the 2023 Second Chance Festival. What are we calling it? Competition. Jamboree. 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 The Second Chance Jamboree. I was trying to change it up, but really Jamboree, I think, is the pinnacle. So we've got some Jeopardy games to talk about. I thought this was a fun week of episodes. Um, Yeah, they were pretty good. Yeah. And uh, the writer's strike has resolved, so... Yes. Yay. (laughs) They have reached an agreement, which, I mean, I assume that they have the next few weeks taped already. I assume so, yeah. Right, because the the second, like, the the wild card is supposed to start next week, yes? Yes. But I saw somebody post something about, like, they'd been contacted about the champion's wild card... But then they were contacted when the strike resolved saying, actually, we don't need you. Yeah. So there's, there's, I guess, up in the air, some questions as to what the season will look like moving forward. Yeah. Which is unfortunate, I guess. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it'll be good, I think, for things to get back to normal. It still would be a shame for people who had been contacted to be like, actually, we don't want you anymore. Yeah. I don't I don't love that. I also, you know, selfishly, there was a part of me that was hoping that they were like, you know what? Second chance competitions are a great idea. And we should just keep working our way back through Mm -hmm. previous seasons, finding people who deserve a second chance. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because I can think of a handful of people who are on season 35. (laughs) They haven't worked their way back quite that far. So. Yeah, no, they, this was this was seasons 38 and 39. Yeah. Or was it? 30, yeah, 38 and 39. Um, I believe that's correct. Yeah. And so I, did, I don't I'm, think they're gonna. I think that this was all kind of filler until the writer's strike got resolved. And I suspect we won't see this again, but I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't either. Unless we get another season of Super Champions like we did. Mm, yeah. Know, like if we get a if we get a whole bunch of of you know, tournament qualifiers, then they might say, let's do another second chance. Cause we had a lot of, a lot of people who ran into buzz saws, but the, right. I'm also pretty sure that the whole production team, Michael Davies, especially is just not going to touch anything pre Michael Davies. Yeah. If that makes sense, you mm-hmm. know, with God, what was his name? Mike Richards. Richards. Yeah. yeah. I, th- I think they're going to stay away from anything with Mike Richards, except for, well, no, no, James Holtzauer wasn't with Mike Richards. He was yeah. still in the season with Harry Feinstein. Yeah. The the whole guest host situation. I think they're, they're, they're treating that as like, that was an, a previous time mm-hmm. and we are moving on from that. Yeah. We recognize it and we are, we are starting fresh. Yes. Which is yeah. unfortunate. Um, yes. Unfortunate for for me. <laughs> for people who, you know, were on Jeopardy in days yeah. past and you know, would like some of would would love to have some of the same chances that, yeah. that the more recent contestants are getting. Um, although, you know, it doesn't escape me that a lot of people audition for Jeopardy, a lot of people would like their first chance 
and you know anything that replaces new shows with new candidates you know every every week of jeopardy that is bringing back second chance contestants and wild cards and whatever that is that is 10 people who are not getting their first chance right that's jeopardy how are you doing kyle oh i'm doing okay i mentioned i like multiple times that i'm like it seems like i'm in the process of getting hired for a job but that process is taking a while Mm. and it is not up to me and that is that is hard for me to accept in my heart Mm -hmm. you know i want to just be like listen I'm here. I'm ready. Let's just get this going. Yep. But that's okay. Yeah. Nobody Um, else is uh, going to ever have the same sense of urgency as oneself about getting getting one employed. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. It is is more important to me than anyone else. So, yeah, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's frustrating. That's, you know, and it'll happen when it happens. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But other than that, I'm doing fine, you know. Uh, just kind of yeah. getting into the the the, the fall routine. Mm-hmm. How are you? I am also getting into the fall routine. I mentioned on the podcast last week that my daughter was in the middle of auditions for her first through third grade theater troupe, Beauty and the Beast production. She got the role of Mrs. Potts. Yay! Yeah. So. We're really proud of her. We're very excited. I'm going full theater mom. And yeah, so that's 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 the big news around here. And then in the video game news, I have returned to Yoshi's Crafted World, which mm. was a video game that my kids gave me for Christmas that I set aside because I had a few different video games that I was given. And also I wanted to do Breath of the Wild before Tears of the Kingdom came out. Mm. So I'm back to Yoshi's Crafted World now. And it is a really cute and fun little platformer. It's so charming. The whole visual style is it looks like things are made from craft supplies. So the whole, Mm. you know, all the scenes are made of like, you know, paper towel rolls and bottle caps and milk cartons and, you know, cardboard, whatever. That's cool. Yeah, it's very cute. And the, and the gameplay is fun. That's us. But hey, let's talk about Jeopardy. So Monday, September 25, we have the contestants Colin Beasley, a private investment professional from West Palm Beach, Florida. Jelana Cotter, a senior data, data analyst from Dade City, Florida. And Elaine Philadelphia, a consumer insights researcher from Washington, D.C. And the Jeopardy round categories are international relations, best original screenplay Oscars, what's in that chip, Shakespeare logs on. I'm not sure what's going on with this category title, uh, but you name the Shakespeare character who is monologuing or dialoguing. U.S. Capitol airport codes and fix the malaprop. Airport codes, man. You just got to know them, apparently. Yeah. Also state capitals. Yeah. I mean... I don't know. State capitals are a little bit easier. Yeah. Because they have like, I don't know, things about them. And there's one per state. Airport codes, sometimes they they relate to the location. Like most of these did. Actually, pretty much all of them did, right? The 200 was HNL. That's Honolulu. Mm-hmm. 400 was LIT. That's Little Rock. Yeah. Oh, although you were supposed to name the state 
not the Capitol or the airport. Right? Yeah. Oh, that's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. U.S. Capitol Airport. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, you yeah. need to get the state. So I guess you do need to know those. I mean, but they were, I don't know, they were, they were mostly, you know, straightforward. But then yeah. there's things like, you know, not that a lot of us wouldn't know where O'Hare is, but its airport code does not make you think Chicago, right? right. Heathrow does not make you think London unless you know that it's there, right? Mm-hmm. A lot yeah. of airport codes don't point you just by the letters to the location. Right. Yeah. EWR, I guess, mm-hmm. Newark, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. It's like um, they, you, you missed the first letter. Yeah. So close, New Jersey. I like the malaprop category just because I think those are fun. If you do them on purpose, they can be very, very comically, yeah. you know, worthwhile. If you don't do them on purpose, then it's kind of embarrassing. But Neptunium was discovered at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lavatory. Mm-hmm. That's the laboratory. <laughs> Hilarious. That is very funny. The myth of syphilis. <laughs> Daily double number one is in what's in that chip at the thousand dollar level. It's pick number nine. Jelana finds it. She's at 2,600. Elaine is at 2,600 and Collins at 600. She wagers 2,600, which she should. Gets the clue. Mackey's of Scotland makes chips crisps with hints of this awful dish that Robert Burns once addressed. And she gets correct with what is haggis. I'm not sure I've ever had haggis. I don't think I would ever want to have haggis. To be honest. Mm hmm. Yeah, I might skip that one. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know with foods. I'm always like, I should try it once. You can say it, if you try if you try one single bite, you can say you've tried it. Yeah, you know, and somehow being able to say that I have tried it seems worth one bite of you know something I might not like. Yeah, I know? mean, I've I've had some stuff that tasted nasty mm-hmm. and like felt nasty in my mouth. So I, you know, I'm okay. Like I could I can try anything, and yeah. I shouldn't. You know, maybe I'll like it. Maybe I'll love it. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Elaine is at 6,400, Jelan is at 7,000, and Colin is at 3,000. Double Jeopardy categories are A Place in History. So that's what those lyrics say. Indiana Wants You, French Literature, White House Pets, and Farming Phrases. Uh, The $2,000 level of Indiana Wants You was an instiget for me. The 1920s study of an all-American place dubbed Middletown was based on this M city in Eastern Indiana. Chalana got it. That's Muncie. I lived in Muncie for a few years. Went to Ball State University. Mm-hmm. Go Cardinals. Muncie is a place that exists. It was a great place to be in grad school when you had no money and not a lot of time to do other things. I will... I think I think that is a good a good description for me of Muncie. Mm-hmm. I liked the whole White House pets category. John Quincy Adams was allegedly in possession of a pet alligator. Well, that's, that's unexpected. Now, how, how much time do you think JQA spent with this pet alligator, or was it just kind of like, yes, we own one and it is out in the pond? Yeah, like. I hope you don't put it out in the pond. 
Who <laughs> used to put an alligator? We used to own some cats. Don't know what happened to those. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to keep. other pets. We just keep losing. Mm-hmm. That alligator is very loyal, though. Yeah, there was also a mention at the four hundred dollar level of the Bidens, two dogs, Champ and Major. Champ you needed to name the breed. Colin got that. Those are German Shepherds. Major apparently has been having biting incidents and I think has been sent back to live in Del- no, maybe not. Is he, is he still in the white house? Like, I know there yeah. were talks of it. I don't know. I don't know if he actually yeah. did. Cause you know, of course it mm-hmm. makes news when the president's dog bites someone. Yeah. Yeah. I, I need to look into it more. My sister sent me a kind of low key conspiracy theory. That's like German shepherds are very intuitive. <laughs> There are a lot of people who don't like this president. Maybe Major's on to something. Sure. Yeah. I, I liked also the $400 level of So That's What Those Lyrics Say. Got a long list of ex-lovers. They'll tell you I'm insane is in blank space, but her mom heard it as got a lot of Starbucks lovers. <laughs> Mama Swift misheard that lyric by Taylor Swift. Colin knew that one as well. That's really funny. Yeah. I mean... Taylor Swift fans and Starbucks lovers, that that's a, <laughs> it, it's a... It's a crossover, for sure. It is. It's, it's, a, a, that's it's, a, a, it's a close Venn diagram. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I tried to I tried to get on the... I, I, I had FOMO about the, the Eras tour and tried to get on the list to get tickets to go to Indiana, speaking Oof. of Indiana, and see Taylor Swift, but I did not even make the wait list. Yes. So, yeah. Yep. Not surprising. I'm interested in seeing Taylor Swift, but not if I have to pay the secondary market prices. Right. Yeah. 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 That's for sure. Yep. Daily Double number two is in A Place in History at the $1,600 level. Pick number three. So early on, Colin finds it. He's at 5,000 with Elaine at 6,400 and Jelana at 7,000. So he wagers looking to take the lead. He wagers 3,500. And his clue is after taking up on another island, the Knights of Rhodes became the Knights of this place. And he tries what is Templar. If you've heard of the Knights Templar, but you don't know what that is, that sounds like a very reasonable guess to me, but it's the Knights of Malta. Mm -hmm. Which is... I mean, it is the Knights Templar, and they, they're they're like oh, their base right. was on Malta, but ah, uh, I had forgotten. I had forgotten. Templar that. is. I mean, Templar refers to the temple, but Templar itself is not a place, right? Right. So, yep, mm-hmm. it's not not fulfilling the requirements of the clue, and they also were known as the Knights of Malta. Yes. So, yeah, 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 yeah. So unfortunate miss there for Colin. Daily double number three is in White House Pets. It's down at the $1,600 level. Pick number 10. And Elaine finds this one. So they all got one. She's at $8,400. John's at $11,400. And Colin is down at $300. Uh, she wagers $3,000 to try and tie with Jelana. Gets the clue. Here's here's the president's wife, Grace, with their pet raccoon, Rebecca, a star attraction at the White House. And they showed a picture. She doesn't know. Guesses who's Eisenhower. It would be interesting for Eisenhower to have a pet raccoon, but that's Coolidge. Grace hmm. Coolidge. Yep. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Elaine's at 8,200. Jelana is in a lock position with 17,800. And Collins at 3,900. The final Jeopardy category is scientists. And the clue is a 1953 article by this pair says, the specific pairing we have postulated suggests a copying mechanism for the genetic material. Everyone got this right. Colin, 
responds to her Watson and Crick with a $0 wager. Elaine also has Watson and Crick. She's wagered 200 Not really sure why that amount, but, you know, sure. And Jelana also has who are Crick and Watson. She's she's put it in the other order. And she wagered 1000 not risking her lock. So she is a finalist, and we'll see her back on Thursday. Uh, and that brings us to Tuesday when we have the contestants Ollie Savage, a high school English and film studies teacher from Burbank, California. Mikal Gould, a librarian from Laguna Beach, California, and David Kay, a high school English teacher from Scottsdale, Arizona. The Jeopardy round categories are caves, about face tattoo, who are they, A-R in quotation marks, the home spa, next stop Venus, and shattering illusions, A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N-S, allusions. I... Did not see a face tattoo category coming. That's <laughs> nor nor did I. When you think Jeopardy, you think face tattoos. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I did understandably bad um, on this one. Okay. I mean, I guess I, the two hundred dollar clue wasn't really a face tattoo question. It was like, what city has wards and French stuff? Mm-hmm. It's like New Orleans. You know, four hundred. I knew. I knew Post Malone. Oh, I didn't recognize him. Oh. He's big in the in the nerd world for magic. He loves Magic the Gathering. Oh, okay, he, cool. He recently bought the One Ring because they had a Lord of the Rings set that just came out, and they made one card that was <sighs> the One Ring, and he bought it from the person who found it for like I don't know a million dollars or something. That's like that. a thing to do with your money if you're rich I know, and famous. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't. I didn't get the others. Oh, I I, I correctly guessed the six hundred. If you don't. Like the LA Dodgers logo near the right eye of this West Side rapper. Don't hate the player, hate the, the game. And yeah. the game. Ollie got that one. And then I was so charmed with, I didn't know the $1,000 level. I was so charmed with Ollie's response at the $800 level. Drummer Travis Barker of this Enema of the State band felt blessed enough to put that in cursive under his eye. The word blessed is mm. under his eye. Mm. I remembered that Travis Barker was the drummer and i also recognized the album title which i was mm-hmm. not allowed to buy that album of course not <laughs> because of the title yeah. my mom was like i don't i don't know what kind of music is on there but i'm looking at the cover and it's already a no <laughs> ollie responded what is blink 182 oh. we usually say it 182 but you know we humans normally <laughs> say it that way yes if you learned it by reading you might as well say 182 you might you might very well say 182 Mm-hmm. We had two different like spa type categories this week, right? We've got the home spa here, and then in a in a few days, when's it coming up? I don't remember. There's like a whole massage category, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's when you got to recycle categories. Mm-hmm. What you do, yeah. Daily double number one is at the six hundred dollar level of next stop Venus. It's pick number seventeen. Ollie finds it. He's at 3,600 with David at 800 and Mikal at 3,200. He wagers 2,000 of that and he gets the clue. We're not sure if it was ancient or not, but the first U.S. flyby of Venus was by this space probe in 1962. He tries what is Apollo. The Apollo program was roughly around then, but not that's, that's not what we're looking for here. The Mariner, they were trying to use ancient to help people think of 
the rhyme of the Ancient Mariner in case that helped. So he drops down a little. And at the end of the Jeopardy round, David's at 2,400. Mikal is at 4,400. And Ollie is at 2,800. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, American Islands. In the corporate arena, you could put an eye out, medicine and history, translate the Britishism, and sailing the three Cs. Each correct response will have the letter C in it three times. The $800 level of sailing the three Cs. This college degree is total BS. And David rang in and then hesitated, I think, to make sure because like, it's sort of a rude thing to say about the wrong right. thing. A Bachelor a of Science. Oh, 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 gotcha. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Bachelor of Science was the, mm-hmm. was the response there. And he hesitated, but he got it right. Yeah. And Ollie is British and kept bringing us back to translate the Britishism, but these were pretty straightforward and, you know, all the contestants yeah. got in there mm-hmm. had correct responses in that category. I hate that when you think that you should have an advantage in a particular category and then they're like, these are some real easy ones that we've thrown in here. Like, right. I know, the- I know things about this. Yes. Let me, let me use my advantage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was a triple stumper about Wells Fargo and they referenced the music man in the clue. And I was so tempted to do like a whole music man deep dive. Yeah. The, <laughs> but oh, I'm not going this, to. Yeah. The yeah. Wells Fargo wagon coming yeah. down the street. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was in the corporate arena at the $800 level. Oh, ho, this wagon is a coming down the street, bringing the money to get its name on the Philadelphia Flyers arena. I guess that's the Wells Fargo arena. I don't really know sports arenas, but I do know show tunes. So. <laughs> yes. I sang that song. I danced to that song. Mm-hmm. Of the songs in that musical, it's not a bad one. I think it's, it's the fine. worst one. Oh, no. Okay, what's, I is, probably have forgotten a bunch of them. What's worse? Gary, Indiana is 100% oh, no, that the worst horrible. one. Yeah. That is by far the worst one. Shapoopy mm-hmm. is up there. All right, Shapoopy is bad. Yes. Wells Fargo Wagon is fine. Shapoopy is fine. the price you pay for... Trouble in River City to be a song that exists in the world. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I've, I've talked, I've mentioned this before. I had to sing it. I was Marcellus when mm. we did it. It was, yeah. Mm. And, did you, and, and that made it abundantly clear that that whole musical is written for one man and that's it. <laughs> like there's, there's the it's quartet valid. songs or whatever, and that's fine. And then mm-hmm. every, every other song that has a man singing, if it's not the chorus, is Harold Hill. Except mm-hmm. for Shapoopy, yep, which is Marcellus. Mm-hmm. And sorry, well, this is not a this is not a podcast about hating the Music Man. It's just <laughs> it's not now. that good. All right, yeah. Daily Double. Yeah. All yeah. right, Daily Double time. Get me out of here. <laughs> Daily Double number two is in. You could put an eye out. Pick number twenty four. It's late in the round. It's at the eight hundred dollar level. David finds it. He is at six thousand. Mikal is at eighty eight hundred. Ollie is at fifteen thousand six hundred. He wagers a thousand. Gets the clue, 1964 saw the first time a man threw this 300 feet, and the first time a woman threw it 200 feet. And David guesses what is a shot put. That could put an eye out, but I think the pointier object is the javelin, which is what they were going for. Yeah. How far do people throw a shot put? The distance distance made me feel like it was a lighter object, you know? Yeah, because 300 feet is a football field. Yeah. If like a professional football player throwing it the length of a field is super impressive. I I just don't think a shot put is going to go 300 feet. Yeah. 
Yeah, the world record for shot put is like 77 feet. Yeah, because it's it's pretty dense. Yeah. So. We just had a shot put and hammer question mm-hmm. in Learned League, which mm-hmm. I also got via show to- a show tune. Shot put, mm-hmm. I figured out. There's a song about throwing the hammer in Matilda the Musical. Ah, <laughs> uh, of course. <laughs> Daily double number three is American Islands at the $1,200 level. Pick number 25. They're back to back. So David finds this one also. He has just missed that javelin question. So now he's at 5,000, but the other two are right where we left them. This time he wagers 2,000. He's going a little bigger trying to get into contention, which is smart i think sometimes people wager smaller after they've missed smart move here i think he gets the clue damaged in a 1906 earthquake the first lighthouse on the west coast was located on this island and he figures it out it is alcatraz so at the end of the double jeopardy round david's at seven thousand Mikal is at 13,200. Ollie is at 15,600. Final Jeopardy category is publications. <clears throat> and the clue is a collection of achievements bearing this name was established in the early 1950s to help resolve pub disputes. David, going first, got it correct with what is the Guinness Book of World Records, which was originally just the Guinness Book of Records. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I guess they couldn't verify world records, but uh, they did their best. And he wagered 5,802 to go up to 12,802. Mikal also got it correct. Wagered 13,000, going up to 26,200. And Ollie missed it. Put what is the college bowl? And it's, of course, incorrect. Wagered 12,000, which would have... Yes, that's a yeah. clever bet. Yeah, Mikal uh, went a so, little too big here, but it worked yeah. out for her. Yeah. yeah. So he drops down to 3,600, and Mikal gets that spot on Thursday. Mm-hmm. Yep. So on Wednesday, the contestants are Allison Pistorius, an actor and assistant professor from Houston, Texas, Mark Lucas, a strategist from Redondo Beach, California, and Barb Fecto, a high school librarian from Beverly, Massachusetts. And the Jeopardy round categories are Law and Order, Brad to the Bone, (coughs) a Soviet Union, Funeral Efficients, Tricky Questions, and Mixed Nuts. That's an anagram category. Yes, which I don't know if Barb knew because it was the first pick at the $800 level. The clue is used in baklava and ice cream, iota chips. She guessed what are walnuts, <laughs> which if, if you know it's an anagram category, hopefully you're not going to guess that with, you know, not using the letters that are up there. So mm-hmm. I think I think she just, yeah, I think she just guessed like a nut that is in baklava and yeah. could be an ice, an ice cream. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maple but walnut. doesn't fit. Do yeah, y'all have maple walnut ice cream out there, or am I am I showing yeah. my New England? <laughs> no, I, we, we have okay. maple walnut. We got lots of different walnut or um, ice creams out here. I like yeah, I like maple walnut, but it's pistachio. It's yeah, they're going for. It. And Allison said, "What are pistachios?" Uh, which was uh, ruled correct, and then later taken away because she added an mm-hmm. s, making it yep. plural, which doesn't work for the anagram. Mm-hmm. The tricky questions categories at the eight hundred and thousand dollar level, Barb had a, a couple of unfortunate misses. I think she was trying to like lean into the like meta game of it a bit too much. The yeah. it was of Boris Karloff, Lon Chaney, or Colin Clive, the one who played the title role in the 1931 film Frankenstein. She guessed what are none of them because Frankenstein is the doctor, not the monster. 
That is incredible. <laughs> I mean, Frankenstein is the doctor. However, Colin Clive did play the doctor. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. what they were going for. The Yeah, I yeah. figured that was the trick there, but I didn't remember the cast beyond that Bor- Boris Karloff was the monster. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it would have been a coin flip, but I'd have been like, oh, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. 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 And the thousand dollar level, the brother-in-law of your mother's unmarried only sibling. Is this relative to you? Barb tried. What is no relative? Cause you know, like that person doesn't exist, I guess was mm-hmm. what she was thinking, but it's your father, right? The, if your mother's unmarried only sibling has a brother-in-law, then that person is your, your father or stepfather. Right. Yeah. Nobody, nobody got that one. That was a triple stumper. Right, but she, Barb did. Barb did know that there is no dirt in a hole. That's how true. much. Yep. How many cubic feet are there? None. No, no cubic feet. There's none um, earth. None earth, indeed. Yeah. And I liked I liked the funeral efficiency category because, you know, you love death. <laughs> yes. I've had teachers call me to be like, your children are talking about funerals and cemeteries a lot. I'm like, that's because that's my side hustle. Well, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, they they talk about what they know. Mm-hmm. So, nobody remembered the thousand dollar level. Ralph Abernathy conducted his friend Martin Luther King Jr.'s funeral service at this church. Martin Luther King Jr.'s church was the Ebenezer Baptist Church. Daily double number one is uh, further up in that uh, funeral officiants category at the $400 level. Pick number 26 and Barb uncovers it. She's at 1200 Mark's at 3400 Allison is at zero. And she wagers everything, which she should. Gets the clue. In April 2005, Joseph Ratzinger officiated at this man's funeral. She wasn't able to come up with anything. Clearly didn't recognize the name. That's Pope John Paul II. As Ratzinger was the future Benedict the Sixteenth. So she drops to zero. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Barb is at zero. Mark is at 3,400 and Allison is at 1,600. Double Jeopardy categories are title women, musicals with M in quotation marks, Rivers of Africa, The Pipe Organ, Let's Party. They're looking for political parties of presidential candidates and Sounds Fractional. Now, Mm -hmm. I thought for sure that The Pipe Organ was going to be about something other than pipe organs, but it was actually just about pipe organ. Like, it was about the musical instrument, not about, like, you know, internal organs of the body or things like that, which I enjoyed. Mm -hmm. I like the pipe organ. Yeah. The $2,000 level was a triple stumper. It's the hands-on name for an organ keyboard. The instrument seen here, they showed a video, has four. Some have six. Mark guesses what is a register. It's not a bad guess, uh, but those are manuals. Mm -hmm. Manuals. Yeah. Because you put your hands on them. Mm-hmm. Except for the pedal one. You don't put your hands on it. You put your feet on that one. Right. Uh, rivers of Africa covered some of the stuff that you covered in your rivers. Deep dive. Yeah. Way back when. Way back when. I don't know if we talked about, because, you know, there's a ton of ris- rivers in the world, but one ton. Of rivers, that's a ton feels like the wrong unit. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Seems too small. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so but we touched on the Blue and White Nile, the Congo slash Zaire. I don't know that we covered the Draw River in Morocco, also called the Wadi. So. Yeah, maybe we did maybe do the Volta, touched on the Volta. the Volta. I think you, you might have mentioned the Volta. Yeah. yeah. They uh, did not do great with the uh, political party category, though. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> Mark knew that Henry Clay was a Whig. 
the $800 level. All the rest were triple stumpers. They, <laughs> they couldn't remember Ralph Nader was in the Green Party. Eugene Debs as the Socialist Party. I feel like that one should have been, I don't know, more gettable. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ross Perot in 96. How soon we forget. Third party billionaires. That was the Reform Party. And then Henry Wallace was the Progressive Party in 1948. Fun. Daily Double number two is entitled Women at the $1,600 level. It is just the second pick. Barb started us off at the $2,000 level there and then took got it and took us to the $1,600. So she finds it and she is she's made it up from zero to 2000 with the other contestants right where they were at the beginning of the round. She makes it a true daily double and she gets the clue of Virginia Woolf socialite first name Clarissa. And she knows that is Mrs. Dalloway. So she gets herself back in the game. Her daily double number three is at in the rivers of Africa category at the $1,200 level. Pick number 15 and Mark finds it. He's at 5,800. Barb is up to 6,800 and Allison's at 3,200. He wagers 3,800, gets the clue. The mighty Okavango River stretches from Angola to this desert in Botswana, where it becomes a swamp. And I don't know if he's thinking of rivers instead of deserts, because he says, what is the Zambezi? Mm, Yeah. Uh, But they're looking for the Kalahari Desert. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a rivers category asking about a desert. They mentioned Mm -hmm. a swamp. I could see how it gets a little confusing. Yeah. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Barb is at 9,600, Mark at 2,800, Allison at 6,400. And the final Jeopardy category is mythology, where the clue is Chrysomalus was the name of the creature that was the source of this sought after item, Velis Aureum in Latin. And they all got this one correct. It is the Golden Fleece. We go to Mark first. He's wagered 1402. Mark shouldn't be expecting to to get into contention, actually, to, mm. to, to be able to win here unless somebody makes a wagering error. So that brings him up to 4202. Allison wagers zero with the correct answer. She's expecting that Barb, if she misses it, will drop below her. So she doesn't want to you know risk also dropping, which is the right move here. And But Barb has it correct, of course, with a cover bet of 3201 which gives her 12,801 and sends her to the finals. Yeah. Which begin on Thursday when we have the contestants, Barb Fecto, a high school librarian from Beverly, Massachusetts, Jelana Cotter, a senior data analyst from Dade City, Florida, and Mikal Gould, a librarian from Laguna Beach, California. Three female finalists is a fun, fun, I don't know. We don't see that all that often. we, we, We really don't. Yeah. And so it is good to see. Yeah. So we have the Jeopardy round categories, beastly literary characters, Marvel villains, natural biology, soul food, S-E-O-U-L, people who need people, K-N-E-A-D, and new words in the 1600s. Soul food, until we got to the $1,000 level absolutely like required zero knowledge of korean food like Mm -hmm. or even korean anything two hundred dollar was the international house of these doesn't serve hotuk a deliciously sweet type of one that's a pancake barb got it Mm -hmm. next one was asking for a bibimbap which has an egg on top so they're asking for an egg and they gave how it was cooked 
Yep. Sunny side lager. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Six hundred yeah. was like Busan lager. Do you know lager is beer? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. And they asked for the the canned meat Hormel makes. Right. Is spam. Right. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the until th- a thousand dollar clue when we got a picture and a B is for this Korean staple barbecued often with garlic and ginger. That's bulgogi. So at that point, you kind of need to actually know something about Korean food. Um, Ken didn't mention it. So shockingly, but uh, he lived in South Korea as a child oh, mm-hmm. for quite a while, I believe. Yeah. Here's that uh, massage category you got. Uh, you were talking about the need people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which the thousand dollar level on-site massage is also called this type, which comes from the Latin for body and can mean relating to a large comp- company that's corporate massage. I don't know. I hadn't encountered that term, and I'm not sure on-site. Like maybe on site, like at a place of business, right? Like I don't know. I've also been at like I don't know, like 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 church, like denominational conferences where they're like, you know, we know that ministers don't take care of themselves, so like there is a massage therapist here, you know, mm-hmm. for on site, you know, like ten minute, you know, chair massage things, so that you can I don't know have a ten minute massage and you know deal with the fact that. <laughs> <laughs> working 80 hours a week for a church that doesn't pay you very much right. yeah my churches have not like i'm not trying to throw shade at my particular churches but anyway on-site massage seems broader than that but i think the latin and relating to a large company pin it so jelana got it uh, yeah. but yeah we had a whole we had a whole massage category i also liked beastly literary characters we had a Beatrix Potter question, which I, you know, one of my early deep dives was about Beatrix Potter when we were very kind of, early, very mm. early when we were figuring out what we were doing. But I'm not sure how much I got into like each individual character and what kind of animal they were. In a tale by Beatrix Potter, Tom Thumb and Hunkamunka are two bad these rodents, and Barb tried rabbits, but Jelana got the rebound. It's mice. Yeah. Daily double number one is at the thousand dollar level of beastly literary characters it is pick number five and jelana finds it she's at 1200 with me call at 800 and barb at negative 400 she makes it a true daily double great call and she gets the clue the title character of this 19th century tale had a pretty white star on my forehead i was thought very handsome that Last part is in quotation marks, and Jelana recognizes that that is Black Beauty. Something kind of notable about Black Beauty is that it's written in first person from the horse's point of view. Mm. Yeah. A lot of those horse girl books are third person, maybe from the horse point of view, but, you know, Black Beauty was, is a, stands out a little bit for that. So that's kind of, that helps, that helps with identifying it. And at the end of the Jeopardy round, McCall is at 3,400. Jelana's at 6,400. Barb also at 3,400. So tied for second place. And the double jeopardy categories are we've got to stop meeting like this. Games people play. Invest. Around the horn. Fashion history. And from the Greek. Jelana is a senior, senior data analyst. I'm not sure exactly, you know. What, what that means data, but yeah what kind of data where like what kind of employer she has but she did get four out of the five invest categories yeah so yeah so pr- probably knowing data helps you with money mm-hmm. and a lot yeah. of money people need data analysts so yes indeed makes sense 
It was interesting to see Barb get the $800 level of games people play. Like, I'm not trying to make assumptions about age or anything, but the, the clue is dating back 50 years, Maze War and Spasm are some of the first of this type of video game, abbreviated FPS. She got it right. That's first person shooter. Mm-hmm. I wonder if she's more of a Call of Duty or CSGO mm-hmm. or like, you know, Valorant, Apex Legends, Fortnite kind of player. You know, mm-hmm. maybe all of them. Maybe she just maybe like, all, goes home yeah. and just grinds the ladder all all night. You know, <laughs> she's a high school librarian, so maybe she play. You know, maybe she just plays with her students. She, maybe she needs definitely. to know, like you know, knowing this, knowing video games gets you a lot of credit with yeah with the high schoolers. I think daily double number two is in around the horn at the twelve hundred dollar level. Pick number four. Barb finds it. She is at fifty four hundred. Mikal is at 5,000. Joanna is at 5,200. It's very close. And she bets it all, which I like, to try and Mm -hmm. get a good lead. The clue is an around-the-world yacht race that requires sailors to round Cape Horn awards a trophy named for this author. And oh, she guesses who's Thor Heyerdahl because she listened to to my Contiki dive. Yeah. And she was like, well, it's got to be that because how would they not talk about something relevant? It is, in fact, Jules Verne who wrote about going around the world. Mm -hmm. Thor Heyerdahl did write, right? Like, you know, like you talked about that. He was a writer. I think she slightly, maybe slightly mispronounced Heyerdahl. If they had been looking for Heyerdahl, I, I, you know, I would be worried about whether she had gotten like all those, like, vowels and consonants exactly correct i remember thinking yeah oh you like i hope if it's right i hope they take you know i hope it's close enough yeah yeah and then she also finds daily double number three pick number 19 at the 1600 dollar level of we've got to stop meeting like this at this point she's down at 400 with me call at 7400 and jelana at 17600 uh she says you're killing me ken and then she does what she has to do which is to wager 2000 mm-hmm. um and she gets the clue in February 1945. FDR, Churchill, and Stalin met at the Livadia Palace near this Black Sea resort. <laughs> and she sighs heavily and she says, what is Walt Disney World? Because she does not know <laughs> that it's Yalta. I, Barb has really won me over in this, yeah. in this game. <laughs> yeah, so Yalta and Ken says maybe Stalin would have enjoyed Disney World more. Disney World, of course, opened in 1971. But, you know, I mean, she knew. <laughs> She knew she didn't have it, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. And then that drops her down again. And then in the next clue, the $2,000 level of we've got to stop meeting like this. Holy Roman Emperor Charles V called the 1521 meeting of this assembly at Worms. You had a question where you had to produce or a clue where you produced Worms. I was mm-hmm. mad you got it on the buzzer when we played. Yeah. Um, so Barr brings in and what is says what is counsel? She is ruled incorrect, and Mikal gets the rebound with diet, which is what they were looking for. Game goes on a little bit. Mikal picks up some money. Jelana picks up some money, and by the last few clues, like you can see, they're all four hundred and maybe one eight hundred, and you can at at a certain point you can see that Barb needs all of them to get anything on the board like she to to get out of the red and to get for, if she if she gets all of them she'll have 400 and con- can participate in final jeopardy mm-hmm. so she gets the 400 dollar at pick number 26 she gets the 800 at pick number 27 
she and then tw- pick number 28 400 of around the horn uh in august 1578 this english navigator sailed around cape horn barb rings because she knows her only chance of participating is to get everything and then she can't think of anything and she says who is i gave it a shot ken says you had to do it nobody gets it it's francis drake hmm. barb gets that 29 at the 29th pick at the 400 level if barb gets that very last one at the $400 level, she'll get up to zero, but she still won't get to participate. But Jelana gets that. And we're heading into final Jeopardy. And Ken announces there is a scoring adjustment. Barb is at negative 400. And he says the judges have looked at again at the Council of Worms. And it that is accurate. It has been called that. That is you know not what they were mm-hmm. looking for, but it's correct. So they add 4,000 to her score. And, and she is back in you know getting to participate in final jeopardy right which it which is a big deal because it's a two-day yeah point affair like mm-hmm. you're you're missing out on a lot of potential value there if you don't don't get to play so we get to final jeopardy barb is at 3200 mccall is at well, 11,400 jelana is at 19,200 and the category is symphonies Love it. And somehow I just knew that it was going to be this because it's always this. The clue is debuting at Carnegie Hall in 1893. It was written by a European living in New York and partly inspired by the Song of Hiawatha. They all got it correct with what is the New World Symphony. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barb wagered everything. Smart. Goes up to 6,400. Mikal wagered 10,000. Goes up to 21,400. And Jelana also wagered 10,000, going up to 29,200. Just in case anybody's wonder- wondering, it is also Dvorak's ninth symphony, if you want to be, you know, technical about it. Anyway, uh, yeah, they all got it. And they've, Jelana especially is, you know, set up in a good place for the next game, but so is McCall. And Barb isn't out of it. 6,400 is a lot more than zero. Yep. And so that brings us to Friday. We have the same contestants as yesterday with the scores that we just mentioned. And our Jeopardy round categories are The Ship of State, Weird Al Parodies, That's a Vegas Casino, Chemical Formulas, Back to School, and Words That End with E. Weird Al Parodies was nice. I think I remember that category when it came up the last time. Like, you think that they use just all of these clues, like they're just recycling these? I, I feel like it, because unless, I mean, if you're asking about Weird Al parodies, they're going to be the same the same songs. But it did, it did feel familiar. You know, the $600 clue, of course, was in there. Encyclopedias and a case of turtle wax were among the prizes Al didn't win in this song and video. That's near and dear to our hearts. That's, of course, I lost on Jeopardy. I got that. There was laughter, but I seem to recall that being a correct response on Jeopardy before. Yeah. Let me note that you can you can lose on Jeopardy. You there there were times in history when you could lose on Jeopardy and get encyclopedias. That is where the encyclopedias in my grandparents' house came from when I was a kid. My my grandfather. Mm-hmm. My grandfather lost on Jeopardy in the Art Fleming era and was given encyclopedias as like a consolation prize. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean just on the topic back when like wheel of fortune started people didn't Mm -hmm. win cash right like they won Hmm. they earned money that they then redeemed for prizes at the end and there was like there was like a ceramic dalmatian or something like it was the it was the cheapest thing and so like if you had a little money left over that's what you'd grab 
I think hmm. like I remember my parents telling me I don't remember this actually happening, but because you know I was too young at that point or even not alive. But yeah, I I believe that is the way that it was. Huh. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I like that um, cash is just the consolation prize now. I think that's a lot easier. Yeah. For everyone. Yeah, agreed. Especially because you you have to pay taxes on the on the cash value of whatever you win, right? Like. It might seem really cool to win a car. A car. <laughs> that would I mean, be a consolation prize. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you do have to pay taxes on the car or whatever. I mean, you know, God forbid it's a very inspe- expensive encyclopedia. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to put you in the poorhouse. Yeah. The $1,000 clue of the ship of the state is one of my, I don't know, pet. Is, is it a pet peeve? I don't know if I'd describe it as that but a a tidbit that I like to remind people of in 1862, the captured and rebuilt USS Merrimack was relaunched as the CSS. This state, we call guy that's the Virginia Mm -hmm. monitor and the Merrimack did not fight each other. Mm. The monitor and the Virginia fought each other. Yeah. I don't know the names of Vegas casinos. (laughs) So that was a tough category for you. Mirage, Mirage and Luxor, I recognized as the names of Vegas casinos, but like Flamingos, Treasure Island, and New York, New York, are those all casino names? Well, the Flamingo. Flamingo, okay. All right, but... Treasure Island, yes. New York, New York, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Huh. I mean, you you lived your life out east. Yes. Out here in the west, we mm -hmm. we make our, our pilgrimage to... The city of lights, as we call it. Yeah. I'm going to have to go to Las Vegas someday. I drove out there in college one summer because Google Maps told us that that was where the nearest in and out was. (laughs) And then as we were driving there, like we just did it in one jaunt because we were, you know, college kids. As we were driving on the highway, we saw a sign for in and out in like St. George, Utah, but it was the middle of the night and we were like, we're just going to go to Vegas. <laughs> How far did you drive to Las Vegas to go to In-N-Out Burger? I mean, it took like 12 hours. Okay. I think. Now I'm not remembering exactly how long. It's not close. We can get through like six states in 12 hours. <laughs> yeah, no, That's... we can get to the other side of the mountains in six mm-hmm. hours. Yeah. And by that, I mean like the Western Slope, maybe mm-hmm. to Utah. Yeah. And then Utah's pretty big. And then mm-hmm. you got to get all the way down to the bottom of Nevada. So yeah. anyway, Daily Double number one is in the ship of state at the $800 level. Pick number 19, Jelana finds that she's at 3800 McCall is at 2600 Barb's at 4200 Shreed is 2200 Gets a clue. In the 1860s, a paddle wheeler named this plied the waters of the same named river around Fort Yuma. And she, I think she reasons this out pretty well. She gets it right with what is the Colorado. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, McCall is at 4,600, Jelana is at 5,800, and Barb is at 5,600. We get the double Jeopardy categories, Cow Country, Facts About the Best Picture Winner, The Vikings, Poems About Poetry, Furniture, and Complete the Oxymoron. Barb had a number of, like, tough misses. Yeah. Really just throughout the week, but, you know, in this game it felt more prominent. The $800 level of poems about poetry, if you really think about it, it isn't so ridiculous, knowing these are the five wor- first five words of A Visit from St. Nicholas. And she 
guesses what is on the night before Christmas, but that was twas the night before Christmas, which mm-hmm. is when I got the rebound. You know, and, and then we had that earlier category where of like the the tricky answers or whatever, where she oh yeah got kind of got caught up in in the meta of it. There was the one that turned into a triple stumper about glucose, yeah, the yeah chemical yeah. formulas, yeah, where she said yeah. sugar and couldn't guessed the wrong, more specific. Right, they were looking for glucose there. Yeah, yeah. we had a more learned league overlap. We had a learned league question recently about the term berserk. Mm-hmm. And then similarly in the Vikings at 400, a recent paper posits the herb henbane as a probable source of this legendary Viking rage during battle. That was a triple snuffer. Berserker. I, 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 I'm, I've never totally understood how, how to use that word. Like a berserker. Yes. Well, it, is like, it, yeah, it is yeah. a noun. A berserker a, was a person. Yes. This legendary Viking rage, right? Like, yeah, a berserker, berserker was a rage. person, but it makes it see. Okay, got it. All right, yeah. yeah. They were known for that. Then rage. we get the adjective berserk, right? Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. got more Ethiopia at the two thousand yes. level of cow country. Gotta have Ethiopia wherever we can. Cattle mm-hmm. breeds from this Horn of Africa country include the Og- Ogaden Zebu and mm-hmm. Nilotic Sanga. Uh, that's Ethiopia. Jelana got it because, you know, good for her guessing. Maybe she didn't guess. Maybe she knew that. But Horn of Africa country, if it's on Jeopardy, it's pretty mm-hmm. safe to be like Ethiopia. Probably. Mm-hmm. Daily Double number two is at the $2,000 level of facts about the best picture. Barb finds it at pick number 13. She's at 7,200 with Mikal and Jelana tied at 10,200. She makes it a true daily double, which given the subtotals going into this game, I think she has to do. Yeah. Yeah. She gets the clue. Doug Jones said the latex rubber suit he wore in this film acted as a sponge. And you see her kind of trying to figure it out, sort of talking herself through it. And she can't come up with anything. And eventually she she says, what is the whale? Uh, that is not correct. Uh, the shape of water mm-hmm. uh, was the response here. The the creature in the shape of water. Uh, so, unfortunately, she drops to zero. Uh, Daily double number three is pick number twenty four. It's at the eight hundred dollar level of furniture, and Jelana finds it. She's at eleven thousand four hundred. Mikal is at ten thousand two hundred, and Barb has gotten herself back up to seventy six hundred. It's really um, impressive. Yeah, she had she. I saw that number. I was like, wait a minute. Yeah, she had a. She turned it around. You know, she she got back up there. Jelana wagers three thousand. Gets the clue. This name was once used for a divan introduced to Europe from Turkey. Now it's a low footstool, and she gets correct with what is an ottoman. Mm-hmm. And you can hear Barb kind of off out of the frame saying, "Nicely done," mm-hmm. which you know, yeah, and and also like you know. It is, it's good sportsmanship for Barb to be happy for her, you know, because I think Jelana missing this one is maybe Barb's very last chance, right. but she gets it. And at the end of the double jeopardy round, Jelana is in a lock tournament position, assuming that she can get the math right and know that she doesn't need to wager anything, which, you know, hopefully at this point she'll, she'll have that 
down. She's at 16,400 for this game. McCall is at 11,000. Barb's at 7,600. The final Jeopardy category is U.S. Senate history. And the clue is in 1805, after four years presiding over the Senate, he left the chamber, calling it a sanctuary, a citadel of law of order. And this was a triple stumper. Uh, Barb guessed who is Richard Todd. That's her husband who, yeah, aw, little heart, who I don't think probably presided over the Senate from 1801 to 1805, but a nice shout out. And she did not wager anything. And tried who is Jefferson with a $10,700 wager. Also not correct. And Jelana tried who is James Madison with a 2201 wager. Um, And so our cumulative scores here, Barb ends at 14,000, the second runner-up. She'll take home $10,000. Mikal finishes with 21,700 for the tournament and will get a $20,000 first runner-up prize. And Jelana is the tournament champion with 43,399 for this two-day total point affair. What she will actually take home is $35,000 and a slot in the champion's wildcard tournament. Yeah. So yeah. we have the three wildcard people mm-hmm. and, you know, we'll, we'll see what's coming up next week. Champions wildcard starts Monday, October 2nd. So on Monday, we'll head into the champions wildcard, which is a big, complicated tournament setup. We'll all be learning as we go here. There is an infographic on the Jeopardy website, which purports to explain how it works. And I'm so confused. <laughs> yeah, you, you can check it out at your own peril. <laughs> if you understand, please tell us how it works. Because, ooh. Jeopardy has not typically had four contestants playing each other unless it's going to be like a round robin thing i don't know i think Whatever. i think they're sending four winners on to the tournament of champions is that the idea i think, okay, I I think that's that. the idea yeah <sighs> okay whatever yeah okay <laughs> um all right well, anyway, this is the break in the middle of the episode when we remind you that we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash potentpotables. And you can go there if you have a couple bucks a month to help us keep doing what we do. With It helps us with the cost of software and that kind of thing, hosting, you know, the, the various expenses associated with making this podcast and getting it out to you. And we'd like to thank those of you who are supporting the podcast. We really, really appreciate it. And we don't like to ask for money without acknowledging that there are more important places your money could go. So we've put some of the ones that matter most to us in the show notes. So with that, Kyle, do you have deep dive guesses? I do indeed. Are you talking about John Paul II? I am not talking about John Paul II, although I, I did see that one go by and thought that would be a decent choice. Are you talking about Jules Verne? Yes. Yeah. Nice job. Yes. Nailed it. First yeah. try, second mm-hmm. time. Yeah. <laughs> I knew when I was starting this that like like the the obvious choice here was to talk about Aaron Burr because he was the Friday triple stumper, but I don't know. We just I mm. Are you Aaron Bird out? I I'm a little Aaron Bird out and like 
I neither want to confirm everything that we learned in Hamilton, nor tell you everything that's incorrect in Hamilton, which is the two ways I could see that deep dive going. So mm-hmm. Jules Verne, here we nothing, are. Nothing ambiguous about him, I hope. Uh, yeah. Jules Verne, of course, it was the triple stumper in Around the Horn at the $1,200 level on Thursday. An around the world yacht race that requires sailors to round Cape Horn awards a trophy name for this author. And Barb couldn't come up with anything. We've talked about Thor Heyerdahl, but Jules Verne is the response they were looking for. So, hey, let's learn a little bit about Jules Verne. We probably know a little bit about Jules Verne. So, Jules Verne was born on February 8th, 1828, on Ile Fedeau, an island on the River Loire within the town of Nantes in France. His pe- parents were Pierre Verne, an attorney, and Sophie Alot de la Fouillet. You're going to okay. find out that I don't pronounce as French quite as well as I pretend to when I'm correcting Kyle. Well, you do it better than me. So yeah. if you want to sound like you got it, just have me say it. Mm-hmm. He was the eldest child of the family. He had one younger brother and three younger sisters. In 1834, at the age of six, he was sent to boarding school. The teacher, Madame Sambin, was the widow of a naval captain who had disappeared some 30 years before. Uh, she she often told, I mean, you know, probably like like lost at sea, right? Like, I sure, mean, right, you yeah. know, but she often told the students that her husband was a shipwrecked castaway and that he would eventually return like Robinson Crusoe from his desert island paradise. Uh, yeah, I think stuck stuck with young Jules Verne and you'll see Robinson Crusoe kinds of themes in many of his novels. Uh, in 1836, he went on to a Catholic school. His father was quite religious uh, and continued. he continued uh, in Catholic schools for some time. Legend has it that in 1839, at the age of 11, he secretly procured a spot as a cabin boy on the three-mast ship Coralie with the intention of traveling to the Indies and bringing back a coral necklace for his cousin Caroline. The evening the ship set out, it stopped... First at Pambouf, where Pierre Verne, Jules's father, arrived just in time to catch his son and make him promise to travel only in his imagination. So that's a that's a well that's a an often circulated but apocryphal story. So mm. if you've ever heard anything like that, or if you ever hear anything like that, it's exaggerated. It may have a grain of truth, but there were some kind of sensationalized biographies that promulgated that story, but it's it's not it's not full it's not accurate but interesting and and widely widely known enough that i thought it was worth worth mentioning here yeah Yeah. from 1844 to 1846 verne and his brother were enrolled in the lycée royal in nantes and then verne took the baccalaureate kind of a french kind of academic certification where he received the grade good enough or you know assez bien it sounds better in french (laughs) also that's so fun (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Did I pass? Yeah, it's good enough. Yeah. Yeah. You can I think you can get you can get like a like a pass, like a bien or like an assez bien, like a like a good enough. <laughs> On July 29th, 1846, he got that. By 1847, Vern when Vern was 19, he had taken seriously to writing long works in the style of Victor Hugo. He wrote one called Un Prêtre on Oh gosh, 18 on 1839. <laughs> Um, I can't, uh, I could translate 1839 into French, but it, it would take me a minute. Yeah, a priest in 1839 with a pretty kind of negative take on Catholic schools. And and he wrote two verse tragedies, Alexander the Sixth and the Gunpowder Plot. 
as well. His father had in mind that Vern, being the firstborn son of the family, would inherit the family law practice and would not attempt to make a career in literature. So his father sent him to Paris to begin his studies in law school, and also, according to family legend, to distance him temporarily from Nat. If you remember his cousin Caroline from the exaggerated or fabricated story about like trying to go to the Indies to get a coral necklace for his cousin Caroline, he'd fallen in love with his cousin Caroline. So yeah, he got sent away to Paris, and his cousin Caroline married someone else more more suitable while he Not was related. away. Yep. <laughs> That's cool. Good. Yep. We're all we're all good with that. He passed his first year law exams in Paris and then returned to Nantes for his father's help in preparing for the second year. There he met a woman named Rose Herminie Arnaud Grosquier. She was a w- young woman. One year his senior, he fell intensely in love with her. He wrote and dedicated about 30 poems to her. Her parents were not interested in this match. They married her to a rich landowner 10 years older than her, which broke Jules Verne's heart. There are echoes of that throughout his fiction. His novels include a significant number of young women married against their will. And there are some, you know, sort of very heartbroken kind of letters from him to his family, his mother around that time period. In July 1848, Vern left Nantes again for Paris, where his father intended him to finish law studies and take up law as a profession. He was arriving in Paris during the French Revolution of 1848, which, you know, as far as I can tell, it didn't really like disrupt his his life or his law studies, but, you know, I think shaped his, you know most interesting shaped him. Yeah. Uh, he used his family connections to make an entrance into Paris society. His uncle introduced him into literary salons. And while continuing his law study, he got connected in theater. He wrote numerous plays. His letters to his parents at this time primarily focused on his expenses and also on some health problems. He had violent stomach cramps. It's hypothesized that he may have suffered from colitis. He also, throughout his life, underwent four attacks of facial paralysis, which now it's known that those were like an inflammation in the middle ear caused that. But during his life, he did not know the cause of it. And I think that, that started hmm. around around this period, part of his life. He was writing profusely and frequenting literary salons, but also continued pursuing his law studies and graduated with a licence en droit, a license to practice law in January 1851. Through his salon connections, he came into contact in 1849 with Alexander Dumas through the mutual acquaintance of a celebrated chirologist of the time, the Chevalier d'Arpentigny. And if that name sounds familiar to anyone, you listen to my very first deep dive on this podcast about palm reading. Chirologist, a palm reader. They were, they they connected through a palm reader. Uh, Full circle. Yep. Vern became close friends with Dumas' son, Alexander Dumas-Fils, you know, Alexander Dumas Jr., and showed him a manuscript for a stage comedy he'd written. The two young men revised the play together and through arrangements with Alexander Dumas, you know, senior, they had it produced at the Théâtre Historique in Paris in June of 1850. In 1851, Vern met with a fellow writer from Nantes, Pierre-Michel-Francois Chevalier, known as Pietre Chevalier. He was the editor-in-chief of the magazine Musée de Famille, de Famille the, family, the Family Museum is the, the 
English title of that. He was looking for educational and entertaining articles for his publication. And Verne started writing for him, offering him first a short historical adventure story, the first ships of the Mexican Navy written in the style of James Fenimore Cooper, whose novels Verne had been influenced by. That was published in 1851. And then in the same year, a second short story by Verne, A Voyage in a Balloon, was published. Verne, through the Dumas family, got was put in contact with Jules Sylvestre, a stage director who'd taken over the directorship of the Théâtre Historique and renamed it the Théâtre Lyrique, uh, the, the Lyric Theater. Sylvestre offered Vern the job of secretary of the theater with little or no salary attached, and Vern accepted using that role to write and produce several comic operas in collaboration with some of his associates. And he also joined with 10 of his friends to found a bachelor's dining club called the En Sans Femme, the uh, 11 bachelors or, you know, without, without wives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For some time, Vern's father pressed him to abandon his writing and begin business as a lawyer. But Vern was arguing in his letters that he could find success in literature in 1852, his father offered Verne his law practice in Nantes, and Verne decided conclusively to decline that, continue his literary life, and refuse the job. Um, uh, meanwhile, he was spending a lot of time at the Bibliothèque Nationale, uh, conducting research for his stories. Uh, it was in this period that he met the geographer and explorer Jacques Arago, uh, the two men became good friends, and Arago's influence led Verne toward travel writing and and like travel like narratives, travel fiction. Musée de Famille continued to publish works by Verne in various genres until 1856, when he had a serious quarrel with Pierre Chevalier and refused to continue contributing. Verne was beginning to form the idea of uh, a new kind of novel, a roman de la science, a novel of science, which he envisioned allowing him to incorporate large amounts of factual information that he was, you know, researching in the bibliotheque. In May 1856, he attended a friend's, friend's wedding where he met the bride's sister, Honorine Anne Ebe Morel. She was a young widow, 26-year-old widow with two young children. He was interested in her and received a job offer from her brother to go into business with a broker. So looking to kind of stabilize his income and get a chance to court this young woman, he he took that position. With his financial situation looking promising, he finally got a family to consider him a, a decent prospect. The couple Hooray. were yeah, the couple were married in January of 1857. He left his work at the theater and took up a full-time job as an agent, agent de change on the Paris, Paris Bourse. So basically a finance job. He was getting up super early every morning so that he could write before going into work for the day. Continued to consort with his bachelor's club, although all 11 bachelors were married at this, by this time, and was continuing to frequent the bibliotheque to do scientific and historical research, much of which he copied onto note cards for future use. He would use that note card system for the rest of his life. 
In July of 1858, he and his friend Aristide Inyard had an opportunity to travel by sea at no charge from Bordeaux to Liverpool and Scotland, after which he fictionalized his recollections to form the backbone of a semi-autobiographical novel, Backwards to Britain, which would not be published until 1989, uh, like 140 years later. They had uh, an opportunity for a second trip as well to Stockholm, and they, tra- they, they, they traveled to Stockholm and then on from there. But... Verne left Tignard in Denmark to rush back to Paris because he was expecting, his wife was expecting a child. He did, however, miss the August 3rd, 1861 birthday of his birth, birth of his only son, Michel. Hmm. Mm. Um, in 1862, he met the publisher Pierre-Jules Etzel, and submitted to him the manuscript of his developing novel, then called Voyage en Balloon, a, a voyage in a balloon. Hetzel was already the publisher of um, Balzac, Georges Sand, Victor Hugo, and several other well-known authors. He'd been planning to launch a family magazine in which entertaining fiction would combine with scientific education, so he accepted the novel and gave Vern suggestions for improvement. Vern made those revisions within two weeks, and brought the final draft back, now titled Five Weeks in a Balloon, and it was published in mm, January of 1863. Hmm. And uh, this was a long, like a lifelong collaboration. Hetzel drew up a long-term contract in which Verne would give him three volumes of text per year, each of which Hetzel would buy outright for a flat fee, and Verne accepted immediately. And so for the rest of his lifetime, most of his novels would be serialized in Hetzel's magazine before their appearance in book form, beginning with his second novel for Hetzel, The Adventures of Captain Hatteras. When that novel was published in book form, Hetzel included a preface saying that Verne's work would form a novel sequence called the Voyage Extraordinaire. And that Verne's aim was to outline all the geographical, geological, physical, and astronomical knowledge amassed by modern science, and to recount in an entertaining and picturesque format that is his own, the history of the universe. Yes. So he was going to try and basically like do what we're doing here, but in novel form. (laughs) (laughs) They had kind of a honeymoon period where everything that Hetzel suggested, Verne jumped to it and made whatever changes Hetzel asked for. Hetzel didn't like the original climax of Captain Hatteras, including the death of the title character. So Verne wrote an entirely new conclusion in which Hatteras survived. Hetzel also rejected Verne's next submission, Paris in the 20th Century, believing its pessimistic view of the future and its condemnation of technological progress were too subversive for a family magazine. Uh, The manuscript was thought to be lost for some time after Verne's death, but was recovered and published in 1994. Um, In 1869, the relationship between the publisher and the writer changed uh, when Verne and Hetzel had some conflict over the manuscript for 20,000 leagues under the seas. Uh, Verne had initially conceived of, the, of Captain Nemo as a Polish scientist whose acts of vengeance were directed against the Russians who had killed his family during the January uprising. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa, that is that is different. <laughs> yep. Hetzel did not want to alienate the lucrative Russian market for Verne's books. Uh, and he wanted <laughs> Nemo to be made an enemy of the slave trade because who isn't against the slave trade? Amen. Yep. 
this would make Nemo an unambiguous hero and would not alienate potential markets. Vern fought vehemently against the change and finally invented a compromise where Nemo's past is left mysterious. And after that disagreement, Vern became cooler in his dealings with Hetzel and would consider his suggestions, but, you know, not necessarily implement them. From that point, Vern published two or more volumes a year. Under the Voyage Extraordinaire collection, Vern published 54 titles during his lifetime, and then eight more were added to the sequence sequence posthumously. Two short story collections were also published under Voyage Extraordinaire, and seven short stories that were published, like bound together with a novel, were part of the collection as well. The most successful of those are Journey to the Center of the Earth, uh, from the Earth to the Moon, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Seas, and Around the World in Eighty Days. But those are just those are just four of the the most successful of this you know huge um, body of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, his work was very commercially successful. Uh, he became wealthy and famous. He bought a boat and then later replaced it with a larger boat and then replaced that with a larger boat. Uh, As you should do. Yes, spent his time sailing around Europe. On March 9th, 1886, as he was returning home, his 26-year-old nephew Gaston shot him twice with a pistol. The first bullet missed, but the second one entered his left leg, giving him a permanent lip limp that could not be overcome. This incident was not publicized in the media. Gaston spent the rest of his life in a mental asylum after that. Okay. Yeah. I'll say, like, what was yeah. this about? Yeah, I think... Uh, yeah, I, I'm. I don't know more than that. He was made a Knight of France's Legion of Honor in April of 1870, and subsequently promoted in Legion of Honor rank to officer in July of 1892. He also went into local politics and served as a town councilor in Amiens for eight, for 15 years. In March of 1905, while ill with chronic diabetes and complications from a stroke vern died at his home in amiens a very you know prolific and famous and wealthy writer his son michel vern oversaw the publication of the novels invasion of the sea and lighthouse at the end of the world after his death the voyage extraordinaire series continued for several years afterwards at the same rate of two volumes a year it was later discovered that Michelle Verne had made extensive changes to to some of Verne's work, and the original versions were eventually published at the end of the 20th century by the Jules Verne Society. A novel titled The Barzac Mission was published under Jules Verne's name, but it turned out to have been basically written by Michelle, inspired by two unfinished manuscripts. Hmm. So after his Literary debut, Verne was enthusiastically received in France by writers and scientists. Uh, Georges Sand was an admirer of his work early on. Um, however, as he grew in popularity among readers and also playgoers, um, because there were stage adaptations of some of his works, and especially Around the World in 80 Days was a was a very successful one. Um, as he grew in popularity, that led to a gradual change in his literary reputation Many contemporary critics felt that Verne's status as a commercially popular author meant that he couldn't be really taken seriously as a literary figure, mm. that he was, you know, a genre-based, you know, kind of sellout, you right. know, writing, you know, Drek for the masses or whatever. Yeah. Um, there were various snubs from the academic and literary elite, which stung Verne. 
but you know, I guess he had his big boat. So, <laughs> however, after Verne's death, there was the rise of the the Jules Verne cult. Uh, a steadily growing group of scholars and young writers who took his work seriously as literature. Some of his fans founded the Society Jules Verne, an academic society for Verne scholars, and his reputation improved over the decades as his stylistic and thematic influence became more recognized. His reputation in English-speaking countries has been considerably slower in changing. Um, translation of Verne into English began in 1852, Um and uh, unlike Hetzel, who targeted all ages with his publishing strategies for the Voyage Extraordinaire, uh, the British and American publishers of Verne's work marketed his books almost exclusively to children. Um, this was a business move that uh, impacted you know, the way that Verne is perceived as an author in Anglophone countries. Those early English language translations have been widely criticized for extensive textual omissions, errors, and alterations, and are not considered adequate representations of Verne's actual writing. Hmm. Um, apparently, some of them also have just like pages and pages of like just insertion, just the translator kind of, you know, <laughs> did a little writing <laughs> and just worked it in. Yeah. Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, who hasn't done that, though? <laughs> Right. I mean, you know, I know certainly when I'm, yeah, no. Uh, so there are, since 1965, more accurate, more accurate English translations of Verne's work have begun appearing, but the older translations are in the public domain. So mm. those are the ones that are, continue to be widely available, you know, can be republished without, you know, without, without having to pay for them, right? And mm. so those ones are staying in circulation. Verne is often considered one of the fathers of science fiction, um, but the relationship between Verne's work and the genre of science fiction is a little complex. Verne's profound influence on the development of sci-fi is indisputable. He's not the originator of it, though, right? Like we can also think of Mary Shelley or even some other earlier writers as, you know, the first sci-fi. And furthermore, it's not clear whether Verne's works should be considered science fiction themselves. Certainly they influence science fiction, but remember the project of Wyosh Extraordinaire was to depict and educate about the earth and history and the universe, which is a little bit different from the kind of speculative project that we see with de defining science fiction. Right. Jules Verne is the second most translated author in the world. He's had that rank since 1979, ranking just below Agatha Christie and just above William Shakespeare. Wow. And uh, yeah, so there's a lot more to say about Jules Verne, but I think I think that's where we'll stop. Yeah, I think, you know, really any of many of his many of his works would merit a whole deep dive of their own, right. but I I didn't know much about him as a person and so that's kind of what I wanted to tackle here and I was I was surprised at how interesting his life was. Yeah. Yeah. That was really cool. Yeah. So, are you ready for a quiz? Yes, I am. All right. I started out this quiz being like, oh, maybe I can pick five, maybe I can pick, you know, six of his works and write a question about each of them and so that's that that was sort of the project but then uh, then I deviated from it as I as I kept writing. So but you know that'll th that'll give us a little bit of structure. All right. So question 1. As we discussed, Jules Verne left the law career his father had intended for him in favor of writing. 
what scientist who, as a child, loved Verne's work, including from the Earth to the Moon, disobeyed his father's wishes, leaving a career in law to pursue pursue a career in astronomy? This scientist's discoveries include the namesake law that galaxies move away from Earth at speeds proportional to their distance from Earth. But his name is perhaps better known to lay people in connection with a particular piece of equipment named in his honor. Hmm. Well, that leads me, the, the, the second clue leads me to two possible names. If we're talking about space telescopes, it's either Hubble or Webb. And I'm going to guess based on the time. I don't know. Guess on guess based on one being older. I'm going to go with Hubble. Good job. Hubble's correct. Edwin Hubble. Uh, yes. Edwin, Edwin Hubble. Yeah. Nice. So, so both Jules Verne and Edwin Hubble were supposed to be lawyers. That's what their fathers wanted. Jules Verne ended up being Jules Verne and Edwin Hubble ended up being Edwin Hubble, the astronomer who, uh, discovered you know had the law named after Hubble's law is named is named for him was that was his discovery he was able to combine measurements of velocity based on redshift with distance measurements and come up with an equation using the namesake Hubble constant relating the distance and velocity of distant galaxies we already knew by the time he was coming up with this that the universe was expanding but the Hubble Hubble's law and the Hubble constant give us a like a time frame for the Big Bang. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, he, he loved from the Earth to the moon as a child. He also loved 20,000 leagues under the sea. But I guess, you know, he ended up going with, <laughs> going with the moon, with the stuff. moon stuff. <laughs> yeah. All right. Nice job. You're at 20 points because you guessed the deep dive topic. Yeah. Question two. Another scientist inspired by Vern's work was William Beebe though his most notable achievements are more connected with 20,000 leagues under the sea. What craft, which we've discussed in a previous deep dive, did Beebe and his partner Otis Barton use in their exploration? The craft, just to remind you, was 4.75 feet in diameter and weighed 2.25 tons. Is that, okay, I, I, I don't know if I can ask this. Does it have a specific name? Or are you talking about a type of craft? I guess I'm talking about a type of craft. Because my thought was bathysphere, but I didn't know if you were looking for a particular bathysphere or submersible or something like that. So I'm going to say bathysphere, and if I need to be, be more specific, I can try. Yeah, bathysphere is correct. Okay. I think that I think the first one they just called the bathysphere, right? Okay. Like there, there'd never been one before. I'm trying to sure. remember. It's been a long time since we talked about the bathysphere. But, but yes, Bibi and Barton partnered on the early deep sea submersible the bathysphere the first bathysphere yeah it's bathysphere in italics so okay there yeah. we go All right. and you can find that way back in the back catalog pre-covid that's yeah. a yeah 20 2019 like or like late 2019 early 2020 like anyway that was an early podcast and the bathysphere was it was an early deep sea submersible <laughs> All right, you're at 30 points. Question three. Journey to the Center of the Earth has been adapted for film and television numerous times. A 2008 adaptation stars what actor in the leading role? To me, he's kind of a blast from the past, but he did make recent headlines for his starring role in The Whale. 
Okay. I mean, yeah, that's Brandon Fraser. That is Brandon Fraser. You didn't really need the blast from the past clue. No, not really. But... 2008? Yes. Was that really what it was? That that seems so late. I guess that makes sense for blast from the past. Oh, no. Journey, the journey to the center of the earth was 2008. Blast from the past was like late 90s, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. But... I mean, yeah, I, I'm saying Journey to the Center of the Earth. That seems later than I remember it. But. Yeah, no, it was 2008. And it had yeah. also Josh Hutcherson, Anita Bream, and Seth Myers, And it was really? not very good. <laughs> I do recall that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fairly true to the book. Okay. Yeah. All right, you're at 40 points. Question four. As we learned on Jeopardy, the Jules Verne trophy is awarded for the fastest circumnavigation of the world by Sailboat, inspired by his Around the World in 80 Days. That novel inspired many circumnavigation attempts, including an 1889 trip by what pioneering investigative journalist? She's also noted for having herself admitted to an to a mental asylum so she could write an expose about the conditions there. I feel, I feel like you've asked about Nellie Bly before, but oh, she is worth I? talking about. Drat. I feel like, ah, I, feel I, like need to, I need to start like... Familiar. <laughs> have I, she, I mean, she's her? important, so it's okay. Yeah, she is. It's okay to keep talking about Nellie Bly. Yeah. Oh, no. I ha- I've asked about her at least twice, I think. Oh no! Oh yeah, no. And I talked when I talked about Emma Goldman. Oh yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Feel like you've that. Yeah, no, I have. I, I, uh, yeah, for the Emma Goldman deep dive. Which when was that? Oh, that's been a while. All right. Yes. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yes. So, so apparently, this is at least my second time asking about Nellie Bly, but Nellie Bly (laughs) is correct. Nice. All right. She, speaking of her circumnavigation, she she managed it in just over 72 days using steamships and rail travel. She met Jules Verne along the way, and then she wrote a book chronicling her journey. She had a rough crossing of the Pacific Ocean. She was two days behind schedule arriving in San Francisco, but her employer, Joseph Pulitzer, the owner of New York World, the, the paper she was writing for, chartered a passenger train to bring her to Chicago from San Francisco. It made record time, and uh, she made up some of the time she'd lost. All right, you're at 50 points. Question five. Vern is often cited as an influence in the development of what aesthetic slash science fiction subgenre? These works incorporate retro-futuristic technology and often Victorian or Wild West settings. Familiar works within this subgenre include Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials, the 1999 film Wild Wild West, and the 2011 film Hugo. Hmm. I mean, those are not the first ones that I think of. I had a hard time figuring genre, out which ones I... you would think of, but sorry, go ahead. Do your but, guess. I mean, I, my, I mean, my my guess is cyberpunk, or not cyberpunk, steampunk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, steampunk, steampunk is correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because, uh, like, I mean, they they do fit. Those are not the those are not the titles I typically go to. Yeah. Which, now that I'm trying to think about it, I'm like, what do I go to? I right. really just picture more I had the, of the same, aesthetic, right? I and, don't necessarily. Yeah. And then I and then I like I thought of I was trying to think of like what works 
would be familiar, like to Kyle, but also I like, you know, like they've got to be things that I know or that I, you know, have heard of at least. And then of those, I'm like, what does Kyle know? What will other people know? Like what's widely known? Like, I don't know. Steampunk, it's surprisingly elusive. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it Uh, it shows up in a lot of places, but yeah. Interesting. Um, So the term steampunk was coined by science fiction author K.W. Jeter, uh, who was trying to find a general term for works by himself. He wrote steampunk works, including Morlock, Knight, and Infernal Devices. Also, Tim Powers, who wrote The Anubis Gates, and James Blaylock, the author of Homunculus. He was trying to find kind of a term for like that kind of vibe and was the first person to coin the term steampunk. And they, you know, sort of intentionally drawing on Jules Verne and H.G. Wells and kind of that that era in their work. So yeah, steampunk. You are at 60 points. And the final category is geography. I mean, I have to go for it. Yeah, you do. I'll try to get that max. Yeah, I think that's a good choice. All right. And I hope that this is kind of a softball. So here's your question. The title of Verne's first posthumously published novel, The Lighthouse at the End of the World, was inspired by a real lighthouse. That lighthouse stands on Isla de los Estados, across the La Mer Strait from Tierra del Fuego, in what country? Tierra del Fuego. I believe that that is in Argentina. And so I, because that's down. But am I am I get am I thinking of something right? No, it's my gut. I'm gonna go with it. Argentina. Oh good, I'm so glad you did. It's Argentina. Yeah. Yes. 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 Woo! 120 points. Mm. Um Yeah. So The Lighthouse at the End of the World is a novel about piracy in the South Atlantic during the mid-19th century. And it was adapted into a 1971 movie as well, The Light at the Edge of the World. I don't have much more to say about that. But hey, 120 points. Nice job. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you very much. That was a a very informative deep dive and a really great quiz. Thanks. It was it was really fun to to dig into Jules Verne and find that he's a much more interesting figure than I realized. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks as always, and thanks listeners for spending your time with us. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you have a minute to do that. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash potent potables. And if you have friends who like Jeopardy, let them know about us. Yeah, you can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables One. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. And we'll be back next week with some more second chance Jeopardy, I guess. Uh, yeah. We'll 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 see what we get. Mm-hmm. Uh, so until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm-hmm.